In the winter of 1980, three airmen walked tentatively from their army base into the middle of a dark forest nearby. They were following a light which seemed to have descended from the sky and was making its way into the woods. After a brisk walk aided only by torchlight, they encountered something unmistakably otherworldly. Two evenings later, more lights were spotted and another group of men were dispatched to investigate. This second group would unknowingly capture not only an audio recording of what they encountered, but the imagination of the world. The events of these December nights in Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk would change the narrative around UFO sightings in the United Kingdom forever and force the UK government for the first time to comment on what they knew about alien contact. From our dark and sinister past to the weird and wonderful every day, throughout human history we have shared stories. In this series we will blow the dust off some of the most intriguing and lesser known tales. Mysterious disappearances, strange phenomena, local legends and events too incredible to be pure fiction. Welcome to Astonishing. RAF Woodbridge and RAF Bentwaters are two airbases in close proximity to one another in Suffolk, England. Built by the Royal Air Force during World War II as a landing pad for damaged aircraft returning from Europe, the bases lie just a few miles apart. Both border Rendlesham Forest, nearly six square miles of dense woodland with a high canopy. Bentwaters is situated just to the north of the forest, while Woodbridge extends into the forest from its western border. The twin bases, as they became known, were later used by the US Air Force during the Cold War, ready to scramble fighter jets over Europe at a moment's notice. Incidents around Rendlesham are not exclusive to the latter part of the 20th century. It was on the 13th of August 1956 that the bases were caught up in the first series of strange sightings. Radar technicians detected objects approaching Bentwaters at between 2,000 and 4,000 miles per hour. Later that evening, an interceptor plane in the air above the base was said to have encountered a small object which manoeuvred around the aircraft. No positive visual contact was recorded, and the incident was soon forgotten by most outside of the base, save for a few members of the fledgling UFO truth movement. But inside the base, the story was handed down for decades. The personnel stationed there would often share light-hearted stories about little green men paying a visit. Imagine the amazement of the men who, present on the Woodbridge base in 1980, would be privy to their own close encounter. At the time of the events in Rendlesham Forest, both bases were in use by the US Air Force, and it was in fact American airmen who made a startling discovery in the early hours of Friday the 26th of December. 1980. What follows is a detailed account of the events that unfolded over two infamous nights at RAF Woodbridge, after which we'll interrogate the most perplexing elements of the story in the hope of uncovering the truth of what really happened.
The winter night was long and bitterly cold as the two security police patrolmen circled the perimeter of RAF Woodbridge. They joked, shared stories, and complained about having to work over Christmas night. The forest loomed a short distance away. In the daytime, the forest was familiar to the men of the base and the villagers who lived nearby. But when night came and pitch black descended, the men were grateful that their patrol confined them to the perimeter of the base. The hooting of tawny owls issued from the tree line from time to time, and the wind whistled through bare branches and stirred the dead leaves on the forest floor. At 3 a.m., outside the east gate, the patrolmen spotted a single, spectacularly bright light descending into the forest. Having reported the light, which they assumed to be a downed aircraft, the on-duty flight chief permitted them to investigate. Joined by another patrolman, the men, James Penniston, John Burroughs and Ed Cabinsark, set out to the east. They estimated the landing site to be around a third of a mile from the perimeter fence of the base. Proceeding with some trepidation, they entered the forest. The men set a fixed course through the dense woods. Estimating where the aircraft could have fallen, and in the distance ahead, they saw a faint glimmer. As they drew nearer, the light shone brighter and brighter, and it was as they neared the source that it became clear to the men their explanation of a downed plane couldn't be further from the truth. There, in a small clearing, they found no aircraft, but a strange object, metallic in appearance and triangular in shape. Mouths agape, stumbling to take in what lay before them and scarcely believing their own eyes, all three men slowly approached the object, fearful but fascinated. The object shone, illuminating the forest around it with a blinding glow. There was a pulsing red light that sat atop the object, and a bank of blue lights beneath it. The men were startled to realise that the object seemed to hover just above the forest floor, or else it could have been sitting on legs, it was hard to distinguish. Penniston described it as being the size of a tank, and that, as he approached the craft, he felt as if he were wading through water. Some force seemed to be emanating from the craft, slowing them down as they moved in. Just at the moment they came as close as they could, it jolted, it weaved through the trees, and disappeared. Stood together in silence, taking in what had just happened, they noticed a frenzied cacophony of sound coming from the frightened and agitated animals on a nearby farm. They gathered their wits and hurried back to the base, the encounter had left all three of them shaken. It was decided that another group would return after sunrise to investigate in the cold light of day. These men set out a few hours later, returning to the same small clearing on the eastern side of the forest. What they found baffled them. Three small impressions on the ground, together forming the shape of a large triangle on the forest floor. Around the clearing, they also discovered severe damage to some of the surrounding trees. Scorch marks 
and broken branches. A photograph was taken, and they headed back to the base. What Penniston, Burroughs and Cabinsag saw could have easily been forgotten if not for the events of two nights later. In the evening of Saturday the 27th of December, Lieutenant Bruce England entered the officer's dining hall and rushed to approach Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, the deputy base commander at RAF Woodbridge. England informed the colonel, the UFO is back. Unexplained lights had again been spotted in the forest. Holt hurried to his quarters at the other base, RAF Bentwaters, where he quickly changed into some warm clothes and grabbed his handheld microcassette recorder. If they were to see the lights again, he wanted to be able to offer some sort of documentation. He reconvened with a couple of his own men and just after midnight, headed into the cold and windy forest. The group was led by Holt, who decided to narrate the expedition into his recorder as it went on. He was joined by England and Sergeant Monroe Nevels. Holt had no prior experience with the unexplainable and described himself as a non-believer. Born in Pittsburgh, he joined the US Air Force after college in 1962. He had been stationed in Okinawa, helped American prisoners out of Vietnam, and spent four years at the Pentagon. In 1980, he applied for the position of US commander in Iceland. The Air Force sent him to Suffolk. The second expedition felt like a gamble to the men. In setting off into the forest looking for proof and recording the whole thing for posterity, they risked appearing gullible and bringing the base into disrepute. However, this night, the men would discover more than just evidence. They headed for the site of the purported landing two nights before, a third of a mile east of RAF Woodbridge. Nevels took radiation readings at the landing site using a standard-issue US military survey meter. The radiation level was somewhat higher at the landing site, and again at another site half a mile away, but nothing that gave cause for concern. The men did note, however, that as they got closer to the site, they could hear a local farmer's animals were making a lot of noise. Whether they were aware of this having happened during the previous encounter, we don't know. What you are about to hear is an excerpt from the very same recording that Holt's tape captured. The recording has since been declassified by the UK government and is now accessible to the public. In this clip, we hear the moment when the men saw the light ahead, again to the east of the forest, hovering above a farmer's field. Still in the woodland, they observed the light from the trees. We're about 150 or 200 yards from the site. Yeah. Right. Strange. Oh, well, what are you doing left? 
hold you the woods up there. Can you undo a lot of lights? Let's do it carefully. Come on. Holt mentions that pieces were falling off the hovering object. He later likened the appearance to molten metal or lava. Holt later describes the object as moving from side to side and that, using a starscope, a kind of night vision device which amplifies light a thousandfold, the object had a hollow, dark centre like the pupil of an eye, winking at them. There was no doubt in Holt's mind that the object possessed some kind of intelligence. Holt would later recount that the larger craft exploded silently into white objects. Holt and his team crossed the field and stumbled through a small stream to reach the spot where the object had been. The men then observed three bright star-like lights close to the ground, two to the north and one to the south. The following extract was recorded in short increments between approximately 3.15 and 4 o'clock in the morning. On tape, there are several audible moments in which Holt stops and starts his recording. Yeah, we're both heading north. Okay. So here he comes from the south. He's coming toward us now. Now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. This is unreal. 330 and the objects are still in the sky, although the one to the south looks like it's losing a little bit of altitude. We're turning around and heading back toward the, the base. The object, to the, the object to the south is still beaming down lights to the ground. Four 400 hours, one object still hovering over Woodbridge Base at about 5 to 10 degrees off the horizon, still moving erratic and similar lights and beaming down this area. Holt said that the brightest of these lights hovered for two or three hours. On tape, he describes the objects dancing about with coloured lights on them. He later claimed, The ones in the north changed from elliptical to round and had multicoloured lights that were blinking and flashing. They moved at very high speed and sharp angular movements as though they were doing a grid search or something. One of them approached at very high speed. It was at 2,000 to 4,000 feet in altitude and it came almost directly overhead and sent down the equivalent of a laser beam. It did not go like a light beam and fan out. It came straight down, maybe eight or ten inches in diameter, and fell just eight or ten feet from our feet. Holt and his crew were baffled. None of them could have anticipated the events thus far, but to have a beam of light shining down from such a height was unthinkable. What could it mean? Was it a communication? A signal? Or even a warning? The beam then disappeared, and the object moved back to the north. Holt describes that after an hour or so, he made the call to return to base. The lights persisted as they slowly seemed to lose altitude. The men returned to their respective bases in the early hours of a wintry morning, and the sun rose over Rendlesham Forest. In January, two weeks after the sightings, the Ministry of Defence received a one-page letter recounting the events of late December in Rendlesham from Holt himself. The letter was titled, Unexplained Lights. The base commander, squadron leader Don Morland, had advised Holt to commit his full, unedited experiences to paper. Morland returned from his Christmas break on the 5th of January, but Holt waited until one week later to report the sightings perhaps fearing mockery, 
or an official rebuke. This would explain the delay between the sightings and the date of the memo. The memo itself recounts Hall's involvement in the incident. He described in plain English the facts of the case. He recorded every important detail, from the depth of the depressions in the forest floor, caused by the craft encountered on the first night, to the red, sun-like light he encountered two days later. The tone is anything but sensational, and Holt seemingly made no attempt to attribute the sightings to a specific origin. Holt put experiences on paper with great reluctance. Privately, he acknowledged that he and his men weren't likely to be believed. His words to squadron leader Morland, as he handed over the memo, were simply, Burn it. Your life and mine will never be the same. David Clark, an investigative journalist with a special interest in the Rendlesham case, documented the reaction to Holt's memo within the Ministry of Defence through interviews. At the time, squadron leader Morland describes following up with the MOD several times, but hearing nothing. He was informed that the Ministry had conducted a review of the radar logs on the night in question, found nothing, and dropped their investigation. However, thanks to Clark's investigation, we know that the Ministry of Defence actually took a great deal of interest in Holt's memo at the time. DS-8, the section of the Ministry responsible for reports of unidentified aerial craft, circulated the report to a number of Ministry branches and radar stations seeking their advice. In fact, Charles Holt has alleged that men from DS-8 were on-site at Rendlesham earlier than the paper trail would indicate. James Penniston claimed that DS-8 officers were in the room when he was interviewed by his superiors about his experiences on the evening of the 26th of December. There are even indications that the incident was taken seriously enough to go to a higher level within the ranks of the UK government, perhaps even the highest. Georgina Bruni, a British UFO researcher, claims that Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher herself was made aware of the Rendlesham incident at the time. She was said to reply to her advisers, UFOs? You must have your facts right, and you cannot tell the people. Just a few short years after the events, in 1983, Holt's memo was released to the public, under a Freedom of Information request to the US government. At the time of the events, word travelled quickly, and UFO conspiracy theorists were eager to blow the lid off the case. The US-based group Citizens Against UFO Secrecy filed the request. Holt has gone on record to say that he never intended the memo to go public. Amateur investigators were eager to dive into the mystery, but the files felt incomplete. They seemed to confirm that the Ministry of Defence had failed to follow up on Holt's report or that if they had, their findings were not ready for public release. A few months after the memo was released, the UK tabloid News of the World obtained a copy, and on the 2nd of October 1983, splashed a front page with the headline, UFO lands in Suffolk and that's official. The story was based on the memo and the experience of Larry Warren, a US Air Force police officer stationed at the bases, who was credited under a pseudonym. Warren's account was mostly faithful, claiming that a craft landed in the forest on the first night with a blinding flash of light. But he also claimed that a major general on the base approached and touched the alien craft, 
and even spoke with alien beings. First contact. The expose catapulted the Rendlesham incident to global infamy. The News of the World paid Warren £12,000 for his story. An interesting twist in the tale came in 1994, from James Penniston, one of the three men who had experienced the very first encounter. Under hypnosis, he delved into his buried memories of the event, and claimed that the craft had been inscribed with a kind of hieroglyphic language. He said that he had in fact been able to touch the craft, and when he did, the machine uploaded to his mind a message about the future of humanity written in binary code. The occupants of the craft weren't alien at all. They were future humans and time travellers. Holt's life after leaving the US Air Force in 1991 was defined by what he experienced. He has maintained his version of events, contributing to two books about the incident and several documentaries. In June of 2010, 30 years after his encounter, Holt released a further public statement, levelling accusations of a cover-up at the US and UK governments. In the statement, he attests, I believe the objects that I saw at close quarter were extraterrestrial in origin, and that the security services of both the United States and the United Kingdom have attempted, both then and now, to subvert the significance of what occurred at Rendlesham Forest and RAF Bentwaters by the use of well-practiced methods of disinformation. In 2009, Colonel Ted Conrad, when contacted by David Clark, offered the following somewhat withering response. Colonel Holt can believe as he wishes. I've already disputed to some degree what he reported. However, he should be ashamed and embarrassed by his allegation that his country and England both conspired to deceive their citizens over this issue. He knows better. Despite feverish speculation that the Ministry of Defence kept a substantial file on the incident, a later release of the complete Rendlesham investigation offered no revelations. The Ministry continues to offer a boilerplate response to all requests to investigate UFO sightings as follows. We believe that rational explanations such as aircraft lights or natural phenomena could be found for the sightings if resources were diverted for this purpose, but it is not the function of the MOD to provide this kind of aerial identification service. It would be an inappropriate use of defence resources if we were to do so. The Ministry of Defence decommissioned Woodbridge and Bentwaters and the US Air Force withdrew in the 1990s. Woodbridge is now a filming location used by UK television and Hollywood films alike, while Bentwaters is a military museum. Later, in 2005, the UK's Forestry Commission funded the creation of a UFO trail through Rendlesham Forest, a gentle walk which takes amblers around the area of the sightings. Nobody has encountered strange lights in or around the forest since. When discussing the Rendlesham incident, Despite the compelling testimony of reliable witnesses, it's important to mention the weight of evidence which suggests that the phenomena can be attributed to terrestrial factors. On the first night, 
The airmen on duty at Woodbridge saw a bright light descending into Rendlesham Forest at great speed. The bright light could easily have been a piece of natural debris seen burning up as a fireball over southern England at that time. The British Astronomical Association's newsletter documented the sighting, which they state occurred at 2.50 on the night in question and lasted for three to four seconds. It matches almost exactly the time at which the men reported the sighting. Richard Bertolino, a security guard at RAF Bentwaters, also cited the object. In a later interview, he would describe it as a very bright falling star. It had a blue-green luminescence. Again, this chimes with the falling object seen by many across the country. We mentioned that the men of RAF Woodbridge took a photograph of the triangular markings they discovered following the events of the first night. It was obtained and published in a book by Georgina Bruni. It's black and white, and somewhat blurry. To someone who hadn't seen the lights for themselves that night, three small impressions in the ground wouldn't immediately suggest a close encounter. Vince Thurkettle, a local forester, was an eyewitness to the marks in the ground shortly after the incident. He recognised them as being far from identical, and suggested that rabbit diggings, rather than an artificial footprint, were to blame. As for the burn marks in the trees around the landing site, Thurkettle notes that these marks were made by foresters to indicate that the trees were to be felled for timber, and that any appearance of a burn was probably caused by pine resin bleeding to the surface. Much has been made of the bright lights which the second group sighted in the early hours of the 28th of December. On Holt's tape, the men observed the main flashing light occurring at roughly five second intervals. The problem with that is that the frequency exactly corresponds with the flash rate of the Orford Ness Lighthouse, one of the brightest in the country at the time. The lighthouse is situated on the coast to the east, the same direction in which the men saw the lights. Holt, who was used to seeing the lighthouse in the southeast from his home base of Bentwaters, could have mistaken the flash of the lighthouse for a hovering object around the tree lines. Indeed, when the police were called to the forest on the morning of the first sighting, they also suggested the lighthouse was the culprit. Meanwhile, the luminescent objects to the north and south also appear to have a simple explanation. Many people have noted that the bright stars Deneb and Vega would both have been visible to the north. To the south, of course, lay Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky. What could explain the distressed cries of animals on a nearby farm, heard by both Peniston and Holt's parties? These could have been the forest population of Muntjac deer, known for their distinctive shrill bark when they are threatened. The unusual human activity in the forest those nights could certainly have caused alarm to the deer, instead of flying ships. As for Larry Warren's leaks to the news of the world in which he claimed that an Air Force Major General had approached the craft and spoken to aliens, Holt passed a verdict on Warren's supposed revelations. It's garbage, he said. It should be classified as fiction, it's so far off base. We don't know of Holt's opinion on Peniston's hypnosis-induced revelations, but Ted Conrad stated that he interviewed Peniston at the time of the events and that nothing of the sort was mentioned. It's also worth noting that even the fringe wing of the UFO movement finds Peniston's claims hard to believe. The 
Regardless of the truth of what happened on those few chilly December nights, Rendlesham remains one of the UK's most infamous UFO sightings. For believers, it's the closest thing they have proof that alien life has ever visited the United Kingdom, several eyewitnesses who maintain to this day that they saw something remarkable. Conversely, for skeptics, Rendlesham illustrates a valuable truth, that if two of the largest global powers needed to cover up UFO sightings and evidence of alien contact, they probably wouldn't have released so much of the story so readily after the events. Rendlesham also endures because it challenges the traditional narrative of UFO sightings, namely that the vast majority of reported events seem to happen within the United States. The forest has acquired a totemic power and is held up as evidence that if aliens exist, they're interested in all of us, particularly our army bases and artillery. It's not for nothing that Rendlesham is known as Britain's Roswell. When Holt spoke at the National Atomic Testing Museum in 2012, at an event titled Military UFOs Secrets Revealed, he spoke of a concerted government effort to conceal the truth about incidents like Rendlesham. I've heard many people say that it's time for the government to appoint an agency to investigate, he said. Folks, there is an agency, a very close-held, compartmentalized agency, that's been investigating this for years, and there's a very active role played by many of our intelligence agencies that probably don't even know the details of what happens once they collect the data and forward it. As he said, it's kind of scary, isn't it? Holt's version of events has remained entirely consistent for almost half of his lifetime. His dedication to the cause of telling the story of him and people like him is remarkable. It's the single most compelling piece of evidence to suggest that something strange happened almost 40 years ago in Rendlesham Forest. To hear him speak is enough to make even the most staunch skeptic sit up and listen. And perhaps, as they gaze up to the stars above, even ask themselves, what if? I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's story. Head to astonishingpodcast.com to find information about the podcast, as well as links to our Instagram, Twitter and Facebook pages, with teasers on upcoming episodes. If you'd like to support us, you can also donate directly at supporter.acast.com forward slash astonishing. Your support allows us to invest in better equipment for improving the recording and sound quality of our podcast and ensures we can continue to produce it. Our next episode will delve into a sensational case of missing persons. How is it possible that in the middle of the Roaring Twenties, the most famous crime author in the world was able to simply vanish into thin air? You've been listening to Astonishing. <laughs>